Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day brings us all together. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few in Lockdown. I tell you what, if you're not fatigued from COVID lockdown by now, you are definitely one of the few. Today's guest, uh, really excited to to have a chat to him, actually. I had the opportunity to spend four years running through the court system when some dick sued me for a huge amount of money. Uh, fortunately, I won. The Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals. It's a process that not many of us would uh, really enjoy going through. And if you've been through that, I've got the utmost empathy for you. And if you haven't, at all cost, avoid it. Uh, Shawnee, something that you've managed to avoid, I think. You haven't danced through the hallways of uh, of a courthouse as of yet, have you, mate? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, yes. And I'm also in lockdown now too. So Queensland's caught the bug, uh, so to speak. But I actually uh, owned a legal practice for 10 years. So not a lawyer, but I hired lawyers to run that practice. And unfortunately, we did get sued quite a few times through human error, basically. Uh, lawyers are human too. And unfortunately, when people forget to lodge for, well, yeah, some of them <laughs> forget to lodge forms and stuff like that and uh, nothing gets registered and, you know, then they come after you for the money that was supposed to be uh, secured and things like that. So there's definitely been a little bit of that going going on and it's never a nice experience, but I tell you. It's a pretty high consequence environment, isn't it? There's there's high stakes there, not only in a practice, but the, the people that you're representing in in those firms. So today's guest is really uh, at, at the coalface and is one of the human lawyers that are out there, typically the lawyers that aren't in the, in the corporate space. Oh, we shouldn't really be lawyer bashing. I'm sure there's lots of wonderful lawyers in corporate law who are listening to us right now. Uh, but with no further ado, we want to introduce you all to the lawyer for the little guy, everyone's champion, uh, Jahan Kalanta. Thanks, Jahan, for being on The Few. It's great to finally have a chance to chat with you boys. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. And I'm super over lockdown. If I could Harry Houdini my way out of this, I would. How do you do it? How do you do law and litigation? It's kind of unusual circumstances, right? The energy of the courtroom, the frisson between the benches. How do you do law in or litigation in, in lockdown? It's a fantastic question. And Anything that's highly contested has been pushed back because everyone recognizes. I mean, the power of a courtroom is fundamentally that everything in that environment increases the authority of the judge, increases the authority of the court. And really, it's part of the medicine. You going through that process, if you're in a criminal context or you going through that process, even if you're in a commercial context, it inspires people to resolve the dispute. And without that there, it makes it really hard to resolve disputes. So highly contentious things have been moved on to the future. Things that can be resolved are being resolved, but it's very difficult. It's such a strange time and the backlog is just growing and growing. How have you found it? The translation to obviously, I'm assuming they're doing visual conferences, you know, like Zoom and things like that. Have you found that sort of transition to in some of the less you know extreme matters, I suppose, where you need to be in person. Have you seen a shift in the way that it all works or how is that working? 
Absolutely. Look, I've appeared on AVL. I've been in um, mediations and all sorts of different types of dispute resolution. And I'll be honest, I've seen a reduction in things resolving by virtue of the fact that things are done through Zoom. There is something really bizarre and magical about being in the same room with the other party and then the clock sticking towards 4 p.m. And just at 3.58, everyone goes, okay, we'll resolve this. Let's move on. Whereas if you're in your house and you just like can go, okay, well, I'll turn my computer off and I'll go. It doesn't have the same humanity to it. And I think that that's a part of the legal system that people forget that, yes, it's this big abstract idea, but you're dealing with human beings. And when you're dealing with human beings, things like being able to look someone in the eye and apologize, being able to grab a drink with them, eat at the same table, it transforms the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole concept of a courtroom has been deliberately designed also to create the certain you know authority for the judges and you know the way it's been laid out is very very deliberate too isn't it and that's part of that overall experience isn't it absolutely sean that's the emphasis when you go into a courtroom you are joining a part of a system and the judge is wearing a strange gown you have to treat everything with reverence and respect and it's so important that people understand that there's this process that's above them and beyond them. And even the most difficult recalcitrant person, when they're in there, they do feel kind of like you're going to the principal's office. I remember walking in every day and I mean, I had a trial that went for 17 days that was meant to be like four and it just went on and on. And every day you go into that courtroom, it's just that hushed sense, your pulse goes up. You can see all the barristers, they're on game. You're having your conference in between the breaks. One of the things I I think in life, whether it's in business or in law or whatever, there's a kind of a rhythm to everything. And from the minute you go in to the minute you leave as a lawyer or a barrister, there is a rhythm, isn't there? You are on for that entire period. Absolutely. I think one of the great tragedies of being a lawyer, particularly a litigator, is I don't think my family has ever seen me at my best, whereas my clients have. You know, so if you're, say, in a, in a trial, and I've been in trials that have gone for months, literally every day you wake up, you might treat yourself to a run or some exercise and then you go there, you will prepare the hour before court, you will be on the whole day, you will have conferences at lunch, lunch and adjournment and morning tea, the day will finish, you will go back to chambers, you will prepare for the next day, then you'll spend the night checking the transcript and you do that over and over and over again. And you have to memorize every detail, no matter how insignificant, because it could be the thing that wins that case. So it's really like being in a tunnel and I can't liken it to anything else. There's no experience like being in a long-term trial. And that's just us being the advocates. It's much more stressful for our clients because at the end of the day, we're gambling with someone else's money. You can't be naive and think that your experience is as difficult as your clients because it's not. And I think that's one of the things that lawyers get a bad rap often as a bit of a stereotype, but having owned a set of practice for 10 years and, and I've got some clients and some good friends who, who are you know, very high level lawyers in different areas is the one thing that I know is that all of those people are act coming from a place of acting in the highest level of service to their clients. And people want to see that, oh, they're expensive and so on. But is it, is it expensive to pay $5,000, have a shareholders agreement set up, or is it expensive to then fight about it for two years when your business breaks down and it costs you $200,000 to actually try and resolve the situation? You know, And it's that, that thing where I see the lawyers that I've worked with, the predominant thing is that it's actually serving the client at the highest level. And as you said, you've got to be on, you've got to know all the details, you've got to have know how it fits in with the, the law. And, and it's a very, very complex beast. And it's no surprise that it's such a difficult thing to be going through, particularly the big trials and stuff. 
Uh, yeah, I can't agree with you more. I mean, things like shareholders agreement, people go, oh, why should I draft that? I'll use the money for something else. Well, the only time that that document will be valuable, there's two. One is when you've made a fortune and you go, fuck that other guy. I'm going to keep more than my share. And the second one is when you've lost a fortune and you're trying to say, well, it's not my fault. It's the other person. Now, when you start a business, you have to bet on yourself being successful and you have to hope you don't fall into that. So it really is this idea that I'm, you know, I'm out to cheat or scam or trick my clients. When you pay me to take your matter on, I accept full responsibility for the decisions and choices that I make, and I give the best possible advice that I can. And it haunts you. I've got matters from a decade ago where sometimes I go, man, if in day three, I had asked this question in this way, and the tone had been this, instead of asking it in that way, this person's life would go on a completely different trajectory. That's what you're paying for. You're paying for me to care deeply about your matter. And I don't think you can be a great lawyer and be flippant about it. It's just not in the nature of the work that we do, particularly if you're going to be in human-based litigation. You're protecting people. That's what lawyers, that's the job of the lawyer is to protect people, as in your client, is to protect their interests, is to get them the outcome they're looking for from a, a trial or, or a, you know, a dispute. And so for me, that's, that's the thing that I think is lost a lot of the time when there's all the lawyer bashing and lawyer jokes that go around, but that's a very difficult space I've seen, I've observed as well. So, but what's your experience having gone through that big thing over four years and all sort of stuff with the lawyers and barristers and things that you work with? I mean, what was that impact like for you? It never goes away. One of the interesting things about going through a process with a lawyer and a, a barrister is you effectively forfeit your input after a while. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It just matters what happened. And then when everyone starts looking at it through a very extreme lens, it's hugely uncomfortable because the whole conversation is, well, you wrote this email and with emails now, the amount of evidence and interpretation, it used to just be a legal document that was interpreted, but now it's three years of email trails and insinuation. And I think the problem is it's just designed to wear the little guy down. Like You can just prolong this event and go through hundreds and hundreds of emails. So it was interesting handing over everything to the lawyer and the solicitor and the, and the barrister. But at the same time, I had exceptional representation and they just did a great job. And you just, you build trust. It takes a long time. You get into a rhythm and away you go. And I always had family and friends supporting me in the courtroom. So that was hugely beneficial as well. Now, Jahan, They say entrepreneurs are a little bit broken. They're sort of self-flagellating, constantly grinding out in this forever marathon. Surely litigation and criminal law, you must be a little bit broken too. Absolutely. You have to be borderline insane to be an entrepreneur and you have to be borderline insane to be a litigator. So I'm just insane. There's no other way to describe me. But I think the reality is that the great thing about the law is that there's a place for everyone. It's bizarre to me that the law is so welcoming of this strange type of guy that I am who shows up, takes on these very challenging cases and allows my clients to put their position forward. But I have absolute faith and utmost faith in the legal system. You know, how can you possibly survive or or thrive in an environment where you're serving, you know, just low socioeconomic people or young people? How is that possible? Well, it is. It absolutely is because they need representation. And if you bring a certain flair to it and a certain energy, you can absolutely help people while running a business. I think one of the interesting things for the average Joe when they look at a lawyer is you must know the person you represented did it or they must be guilty. 
How do you frame that in your mind and how do you make a decision around representing that person in terms of, look, you've got to step up and, and take a hit on this one or we'll do our best to keep you out that, of the that, system? That, that is probably the most common question that I'm asked and it's a fantastic question. Let me begin by saying this. I'm not omniscient. I wish I was and I'm not omnipotent. So I don't know anything for sure. And it reminds me of a story that happened fairly early on into my career. So I was acting in a matter where my um, my client was accused of assaulting a neighbor. And it was a pretty clear-cut case. And I go to my client, you know, why did you do that? And they go, it was self-defense. And I go, okay, so she's this old woman and you're a fairly young woman. And from all accounts, she was standing away from you. How is it self-defense to push her? And she goes, well, she's about to cast a curse on me. She was a witch. And they came from a community that believed in supernatural things. And I was just like, okay, sure, man. What a ridiculous like concept. Okay. But she goes, she was a witch and she has powers. And I know that if she cast that spell on me, I would lose the ability to, to have children. So I go, are you sure you want to run this defense? She goes, it was self-defense. I know what she can do. I've seen her do it. So we go to court and I can't believe I got away with it. But one of my questions in cross-examination is, are you a witch? And the old woman goes, yes, I am. I'm like, what? Okay. All right. And um, I go, do you have the power to cast hexes? Yes, I do. Okay. Have you ever hexed people in the past? Yes, I have. And I go, were you casting a hex on my client on the day? And she goes, goes, I was about to. So all of a sudden, self-defense. Now, I don't believe in hexes, but my client does. And it's both a subjective and an objective test. Objectively, if you believe someone's about to hex you, you can push them down to stop being hexed. And it kind of taught me this idea that my ideas of right and wrong, of morality, of the story are absolutely irrelevant. Now, obviously, you have people who come up and say, tell me what to say. And you have to go, I can't be the lawyer for you. Please get out of my office. You know, I'm not going to represent you. That's despicable. But 80% of cases resolve in some sort of guilty plea. And the world is stranger than fiction. There has been so many examples of people who have said, I'm innocent. We found them guilty. And then later on, it's come out that they were not guilty. The system is designed so that guilty people may walk free so innocent people don't go to jail. That's the rule. That's the game. And as long as we understand that it's far better for guilty people to walk free than the possibility of an innocent person to go to jail, that's the job that I'm discharging. I'm there to act as a safeguard to make sure that good, innocent people don't suffer consequences that they shouldn't. That's interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? I've never heard it articulated that way, but it's true. I guess human nature being human nature is you always have extreme views and you've got the, the, the side of humanity, which is like, lock them up, no matter what they do, put them behind bars. With that, though, you actually did a TEDx talk and you came at things from a different angle. And I remember reading a story 20 years ago about a hospital that accidentally killed someone in surgery and the litigation dragged out, dragged out. And the CEO of the hospital went to the patient and said, look, we did stuff up, we're sorry. And the patient was like, okay, well, I'll drop the case. It was that simple. Talk to us about the power of forgiveness and the power of sorry. What happened in your life and your journey to realize that this was such an important thing for us to be able to do? Absolutely. So look, I'm a first generation Australian and you know, my family came here from Iran when we were fairly young. And growing up in Australia, I was the first brown person that many of my cohort had ever seen. Funny sounding name compared to all the Johns and, and Bobs and Tims. And People don't uh, re- you know, realise how powerful Iranian culture is and, and how 
sophisticated and all-pervading Persia was at the time, were they? I mean, sorry to, to digress there, but no, no, not at all. I, I love that period of history. I mean, it's an incredibly strong culture. You know, Zoroastrian is, is a very powerful religion, and you look at massive. Sorry, sorry, Shawnee, I'm just massively digressing <laughs> here. When you look at the decline of America and the the sways of empires, most people don't understand how powerful Iranian and Persian culture was, do they? No, not at all. And I mean, it's fascinating because a lot of people associate Iran with Iraq and with the Arab Peninsula, and the culture is distinct and unique. It's not saying one's better than the other, but they are different. And the fall of the Peacock Throne and the various cultural norms. I mean, Australia has changed so much since I was a kid. Honestly, it's so multicultural now compared to what it was. I've seen a shift in the last 30 years, and it's fantastic. And, you know, people know about cultures that aren't, you know, it's not unusual to have friends that are from Asia, from Europe, and you, you get to know people, you get to learn from them, you, you eat their food. But it was very whitewashed, and it was very Anglo-centric when I was young. I don't think anyone can disagree with that, particularly when you look at the demographic pattern. So growing up, I guess, I was the subject of bullying. You know, 9-11, after that fiasco, all of a sudden, Jahan, who you've known since you were six, is like a potential terrorist and outside of the group. And it really inspired in me that, wow, things can change very quickly and you need to be able to articulate your positions well. And that was something that I, I needed to be able to do. So I developed, I think, a real skill for empathy because what I think a lot of fear comes from is a failure to understand the other person's perspective. Now, I understand the need for conflict. People don't believe this, but I'm actually not particularly fond of conflict. I don't go out of my way to fight, but I understand the need for it because there's about 70 or 80% of the world that you can reason with, you can talk to, you can empathize with, you can raise a position. And there's 20% of the world that you will never be able to empathize with. There are people out there who are unreasonable. They are bullies. They exist purely to drag people down. So with respect, F them. If they're not going to meet you halfway, we have a legal system. If you're being unreasonable or you say I'm being unreasonable, we take it to the, the person up top. And he or she decides, matter for them. So that's, I guess, the genesis of the conflict that I came from. But I believe strongly that 80% or so of conflict can be resolved between the parties if you take on a stance of empathy. And I've seen it. I mean, I've been in huge, huge tort cases where my client is, you know, has said to me, listen, if they say, I'm really sorry, I can't believe we messed up this way. The offer that they make me, I, I just want my medicals and I just want a little bit extra. And then we'll go there and the insurance company will sit there and be like, no, we didn't do anything wrong. It's not our fault. Your client did da, da, da. And then, okay, fine. Four years later, you pay out a seven-figure sum and you could have settled it for five figures and a, and a, and a genuine, I'm really sorry. We, we shouldn't treat people that way. I've seen it. I know it happens. I know it's real. And I think that the power of, particularly in the modern climate where everything's so technologically savvy and everything's being done by Zoom and email, I think that looking someone in the eye, shaking their hand, saying, I made a mistake or, listen, I don't agree with you, but I can agree with you on these points, it's powerful stuff. Absolutely. And I think it was one thing that's missing a lot is the fact that it's the, the person's ability to give an apology is one thing, but the fact that it's actually a human need to, I believe that the underlying need that if someone's wronged us, you can get all the money in the world put in the bank, but you're going to still feel that that person's taken no responsibility for wronging you. And if they genuinely and authentically apologize, it takes away that, that sense, you know what I mean? So that's, that's how I look at it. Now, following on from what Bill was saying about your, your Ted talk in that Ted talk, you talk about a framework of how to actually 
craft an impactful and meaningful apology. I'd love to, I'd love to share that with, with everyone on the podcast as well. Sure. So I guess if I'm known for one thing, it's my apology framework. The genesis of this framework really came from when I was a fairly young lawyer doing a lot of duty work. And duty work is when you're at the courthouse and anyone shows up and says, hey, I have a case. It's on today. Help me. It kind of came from that because when you're a young lawyer trying to get experience, you you do stuff like that. You give pro bono work. And, you know, I I used to go to community legal centers and, and, and do that type of work. And a lot of the time it's purely, I'm going to plead guilty, but I don't know how. And when I was first starting out, on a single day, you might get a Centrelink fraud, you might get an arson, you might get a domestic violence, you might get a drug possession. And you don't know the legal framework around all of those things. You don't know what goes into making a a drug case more serious or less serious. You don't know what goes into making a Centrelink case more serious. So I made a conscious decision to go, okay, the legal side of things, I will learn. It will take time, but I'm not going to be able to master this now. But what I can get really good at is telling a person's story. And I found that if you give a good apology, it's night and day difference between what the final outcome will be. So we're talking the difference between going to jail and not going to jail, going to jail for a long time versus a short time, getting to see your children versus not getting to see your children, really big consequences. And you have done something wrong. This is the thing here when it comes to an apology. It's not like you haven't done something wrong. It's not like you're trying to get off the hook for some sort of false accusation. You're talking about people and circumstances where a genuine wrong was done. Absolutely. The worst thing you can do is try to fake an apology. And the worst thing you can ever say is, I am sorry you feel that way. That's the worst thing that you could ever say in any... Like, if you get that out of your vocabulary, it's the worst thing you can say. You have to acknowledge that you've done the wrong thing and you have to take steps to remedy it. So the simplest way of apologizing correctly, I have found, is why, because, and. So, guys, I'm sorry I was late to the podcast today. So what I've done wrong, because you guys spend so long getting this podcast ready. You sent me fact sheets. You told me what I needed to do. And how am I going to modify my behavior in the future? And in the future, if I'm lucky enough to come on the few again, I'll make sure that I set aside 20 extra minutes so that we can get things going faster. That's a good apology because what I've done is I've acknowledged my mistake. I've acknowledged the impact that mistake has on you and I've told you how it won't happen again. You have to do all three and you have to follow through. If you say, I'm so sorry I was late because I know that you've been waiting for me and in the future be on time. If you're late again, well, that's not going to work. That's a very powerful but simple framework. And, and again, I think it's something that we're not taught. Like I think it's that feeling piece that people struggle so much with actually apologizing, getting over their ego and apologizing. It's like, oh, well, screw you. I really don't want to apologize, even though I did something wrong. But then you did this to me and you said that. And it's, I think there's that internal struggle often to actually be vulnerable enough to apologize because often that other person may not receive it. They may kind of just block you or they may respond you know, aggressively and not respond in kind and there can be fear there. And what I've found is that you've just got to do it anyway because all we can control is how we behave and what i've seen is somebody else's response that's their responsibility not mine so if i communicate something authentically or genuinely and apologize for something if they don't want to receive it that's ultimately not my problem because as long as i've delivered it the right way i feel that i've done everything i can you know because we're all human we're all going to make mistakes we're going to screw up every now and then but it's that ownership piece i think then underlies that ability to apologize authentically doesn't it and i know you're good at it Sean, because you're forever apologising for me every week for something or other. So. 
Well, you've raised two equally important points, and I agree with both of them. I think the first point is we're not taught to apologize correctly. And think about it. When you're a kid and somebody says, say sorry, well, an authority figure who's basically the almighty is forcing you to do something. So you will say whatever you're told to say because you're a child. You don't understand why you say it. And as you get older, that doesn't change. You don't get better at saying it. We never have a class where it's like sleep. You know, we should be doing it eight hours a day, but why and how it works. I was never taught why we sleep. And I think it's a fascinating idea. But same with sorry. We've never taught, hey, sometimes you do the wrong thing. You can do it because you actively do it. It's benign or it's nefarious. And if you do, it makes the other person feel this. And so we never we never learn that skill set. That's the first. And the, the second is when we're older and we want to say sorry, we're doing it in an emotionally charged, unpleasant time. And we're not conveying it accurately because when you're emotionally charged, angry, stressed, you're not going to be at your best. You know, your IQ drops, I think, 50 to 100 points in a crisis. So you, you're just not articulate and you're not able to convey it. So having this in the back of your head helps you with that. And I think the second point that you raised is, I've never been on a nuclear submarine, but it's the t- turning the two keys to launch the nuke that we see in all the films, which I don't even know if it's a real thing. But all you can do is turn your key. And the reality is if they choose not to accept your apology, there's nothing you can do about that. Holding on to anger, I think Nelson Mandela said it. It's like, if I drink poison and hope that you suffer for it, it's insane. All you can do is let the, you know, you can extend that friendship. And if they don't want to accept it, they don't accept it. You can't be bitter that they don't accept it. They might have a perfectly good reason. And the way that you've behaved may have been so outside of the value structure that they hold that they'll never be able to forgive you. But you've done all you can do. And that's all you can do in life. Often it's that ability to forgive ourselves about it too. So that guilt that we carry for making a mistake, wronging somebody or, or hurting somebody, often will that will be part that holds us back from actually letting it go. It's actually no longer about the other person. It's actually about us. It's about us forgiving that action that we did and letting it go because I think that we tend to carry way too much and, again, not taught ways to actually remove that so that we can genuinely forgive ourselves We've apologized and done and let it go and let that 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 thing be historical now and move forward, you know, free and clear. No, I agree. I do a little bit of work, well, I do a lot of work actually with companies around debriefing culture, around your know, mistakes, accepting them, learning, moving forward, which is why what you're saying resonates with me a lot there, Jahan. But one thing I was reading just yesterday was the challenge humanity has with mistakes and failure. It starts as a child. You'll walk into the house. There'll be a child there with crayons in their hand. They've drawn all over the wall and you go, Hey, what have you done? Was it? I didn't know anything. And it's like caught red handed. There's no disputing the fact, but that child will sit there and till they're blue in the face say, I didn't do it until they get a smack or until there's a consequence. And it's at that point in time, they say sorry. Why are we designed that way? That we evolve and develop self-awareness as we grow, but our programming as a child is to admit nothing. As a lawyer, admit nothing is a great strategy and the default should be don't say anything. It used to be the shaggy defense, it wasn't me, but that's just not that's that's worse. Just don't say anything. You don't have to incriminate yourself. You you've got a presumption of innocence. I think the powerful thing that that I see a lot in is people look at a criminal and they just see a criminal. They look at their the worst action and often behind that criminal or that crook is a person who's had a really tough life. Every successful person I've ever met has had at least one adult really care about them and care about their development, be it a parent, a mentor, guardian, 
what have you. A lot of people I meet in criminal law have never had that. They've never had anyone ask them about their life until I've met them. That's pretty dark. It's pretty dark when you really think about it. They've lived maybe 30 years and I go, who's going to write a reference on your behalf? And they can't think of one person who can say one nice thing about them. And I think a good parent's, I mean, I'm not a parent, it's the hardest job on earth, but I think a good parent's job is to be a substitute for society. And their role is to sit there and say, okay, this is what is and isn't acceptable. And that sometimes may mean, hey, you're caught red-handed, you've done the wrong thing, you have to admit and apologize because otherwise people won't like you and you won't be able to, to play with other people. People are always shocked at how people can do these awful and nasty things. But if you don't get the attention you need often enough and slowly it gets grows and grows and grows, it's inevitable that that will happen. Absolutely. And I, you know, Boo and I are both parents, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Boo, is that the role of the parent is the guide. It's to guide your child or children to understand why values are important, that doing the right thing or admitting mistakes or not not lying, you know, not beating people up or, or whatever, those things is about teaching and guiding our kids to learn what is right and wrong, what is acceptable, what is going to give them the, the best opportunity when, they're, when they grow up. And it's no surprise that we're kids that grow up and they're 30 or whatever they are, they're, they're still basically, be, you know, from that perspective, they're still kind of in that childish frame because they've not had the guidance from a parental figure to actually say, you know what, what you're doing is not okay and this is why. It's fascinating you say that because when I, I was sued by a sociopathic narcissist whose idea of common ground was he wins everything. And when you speak to him and in, in his mind, you could see that he couldn't grasp any other outcome other than it's all mine. How can you not just give me what I want? Because that's clearly the right way. And resonated, Jahan, when you said before, it's only in court where you can have conversations with that. So my question is, Prior to court and with what you've learned over time, how does the average person deal with a sociopath? By engaging a solicitor or a barrister that fights fire with fire. I mean, some jurisdictions are more, I would say, aggressive than others. You know, everyone thinks criminal law is aggressive. Family law is far more aggressive than criminal law. Like the letters that I have seen sent to me in family law, it's insane. You know, and I always respond with your tone is noted, you know, because what else can you say to someone who's unreasonable? Knowing that early, I think you extend the olive branch once, you extend it twice. If it's not going to resolve, it's not going to resolve. So be it. I'll see you in court. I think that the difficulty is that people have an unwillingness to take things to court. But sometimes the person you're dealing with is a sociopath. They're narcissistic. They will never understand. Okay, you don't have to convince them. Convince the judge because they won't be convinced. They're crazy. And I think that that's something that needs to be understood. You know, I try to be very affable. I try to be very pleasant. But at least once or twice a year, I have to pull someone aside and say, hey, you seem to mistake the fact that I'm speaking to you politely and respectfully for the fact that I'm some sort of coward or idiot. And let me just disabuse you of that right now. If this is the way you're going to speak to me now, we're done. And I'm going to make it very difficult for you. And you have to, I guess, carry that stick. It's very hard because people don't want to acknowledge that they have that stick inside them. But if you're not able to bare your teeth from time to time, if the only tool you have is, well, let's reconcile, you won't get far. You need to know that in a crisis that inside you is a general, is a warrior, and you have to be ready to, to access that person. I think that that's that saying that I've heard before, which I love, is don't mistake my kindness for weakness. The same thing, I had a narcissistic buddy guy that just same thing he ended up ripping off you know, millions and millions of dollars off heaps of people and one thing he didn't realize is we had a legal practice so we did something and put something against some of his property so he had to pay us back but it went for three and a half years then he was in jail 
And then I got sued by him again and so did the other 29 people that were witnesses in the case that put him in jail for rent, for you know living expenses, medical expenses, or defamation or something because I said that he did X, Y, and Z at, at some point like years ago. Well, one, the statute of limitations was nine years out of date, right? So it was he couldn't sue me for one of the things. The other thing was that the 100 grand he was asking for, I was already paying it with my tax money because he's in jail. So he didn't have to pay for medical, food, or accommodation, right? And so, but thankfully, the um, court somehow managed to get all 29 of them to one, one judge and it got thrown out, but it still took three and a half months and cost me seven and a half grand for something that was completely not even ever going to fly. And that was 29 of us. And as soon as he did that, I just went straight, my lawyer just went bang. I said, go home as hard as you need to. This is just bullshit. And sometimes you say you need to step up, you need to fight fire with fire because if you don't, you will get burnt, right? Let's take it to a business context. I know a lot of people that, that listen to this podcast are in business is sometimes you need to bring out the, the big guns because you will get trodden on, you get walked over. If people are not paying you, you know, if someone's, you know, doing the wrong thing. People or, make businesses or, you know, out of not paying their suppliers. That, that, that is their business model. You win a big contract and you don't pay the last claim. Right? And you're right, you've got to just step up to the plate kick them in the nuts back. It's bullying behaviour. Now, Jahan, can I ask you a question because we didn't get a chance to go there, but you you introduced it into the conversation. Was being the the outsider at school, and I've got some empathy for you here. When I went to school, I was still the wog, the wop. Uh, it was pretty waspy environment, and that did motivate me. That did plant a little bit of a fuck you mindset and went into my shell a bit and and I used to do things that other people didn't do. I'd put in the extras. I'd be, you know, I wanted to row in the first eight. So in the middle of winter, I was out by myself getting the extra kilometers in. Tell us a little bit about life on the outside and how that defines what you do. One of the things that I think is quite staggering, I'm sure it's not people who listen to this podcast or people who are relatively cosmopolitan, but it's how lucky we are to live in Australia and how good we have it. The worst day you will suffer in Australia is better than the wildest dreams of most people around the world. You know, if you've traveled a bit, if you've just watched what's going on in the world, we are so blessed. I mean, people would risk everything to come and sleep in a park here because there's no warlords, there's water, there's food. When was the last time you heard of someone starving to death in Australia? It's just so nice. And I think with that comes either a sense of gratitude or a sense of apathy, because you start to think, well, it's so good. Why don't I have more? Why should I have to work? Everything's already provided for me. And so being a new immigrant, I think one of the things my parents instilled in me was like, look, we're lucky to be here. We've left somewhere where things were very bad and very hard. And we did that so that you could have a better life. So there's opportunities here, but you have to go for them. And it kind of creates in you this sense of, okay, well, it's almost like being a guest in someone else's house, which is insane because I'm as Australian as the next person, but you do feel that certainly. And so you go, well, how am I going to make myself useful? And you do things like charity work and you do things like getting out there, learning, putting in the hours. So I knew that if I was to be accepted by Australia, I would have to work twice as hard. I'd have to work twice as hard to get where someone else would get without having to. And that's okay because I can work twice as hard. I enjoy working. I find that the reaching for a goal is actually far more satisfying usually than reaching it, really. And you learn that fairly early on in life. I mean, you, you study five, you know, four years to get your, your degree. You get it. You feel good for like three hours and you're like, okay, what's next? But it's that going for it that really excites and, and motivates. And so I really resonate with what you're saying, Boo it really does inspire in you a sense of working hard. And it also inspires with you a sense of gratitude. I mean, 
not every single person who comes to this country gets the opportunities that I've got. And while it is the lucky country, there are people here who are super unlucky. And if you can help alleviate a burden, going, I guess, a bit off piste, what of the great joys for me is alleviating a burden that I've personally felt because I know what it's like to be discriminated against. It gives me great satisfaction to fight in discrimination cases because I know what that's like. I know what that feels like. And being able to pave the way for someone else who's felt the way that I felt, it's the best. Mm. And it's interesting that, I mean, you know, I hear, hear this so so often. Obviously, both of you guys have you know, international heritage. My family was here from the Second Fleet, I believe. I don't think we had any kids that weren't effectively Anglo-Saxon when I was in primary school. And because I was a bit quiet and a bit, different I mean out there I was the target so the same thing I mean again it's not just attached to heritage but I've also seen that with my kid's mum and her family they came here from Argentina when she was six and no English four suitcases and a couple of grand that was it that was the whole thing and you're right they had to work twice three times as hard as everybody else to actually make it to to do and they have done they've, they've done incredibly well through just grit, determination, and that drive and the level of respect I have for them for, for making that decision for their kids, you know, to we want you to have a better opportunity than we did. We want you to have a better life. And, you know, I, utmost respect for everyone who's I had that bold move to do that. You know, when we moved overseas as a family, when I was in my teens uh, to Germany for a year, we were looking to stay there, but it didn't work out and ended up coming back. But it's an interesting thing to see when you're on both sides of it too, because I was now the foreigner coming in at the import and how that was being received. You know, one of the things in this obviously is, is the fact that we're all in, involved in business. We're all involved in dealing with people and psychology and all that sort of stuff. In your journey, Jahan, what, what are some of the, the biggest lessons you've taken away from, you know, be it any context, your own business, some of the, I'm sure you've learned so much from working with particular cases and stuff, but what are the, some of the, I suppose, the, the, the most powerful representations of human nature and things like that that you've seen in your career? If there's one that I think is surprising is that every single person has one story that if you hear it, it will absolutely break your heart. And everybody has one experience that if you know about it, you would really admire and respect them. And that comes across a cross section of society. Everyone has one heartbreaking story and everyone has at least one moment where they really rose up. So, Keeping that in mind when you deal with people. The second thing that I found is really helpful is people are not the best thing they do or the worst thing they do. They are who they are on an average Tuesday. So if you get a client who's being super unreasonable and they're usually quite reasonable, there's, there's usually a reason. I think the third one is walk quietly but carry a big stick. You do not and should not allow people to think that you're not prepared to, to fight fire with fire. It's funny, I, whenever a new client engages us, what I often say is, look, let's pick two people who've been very difficult in accounts receivable. They've just been recalcitrant. And let's make it very clear that we're going to get what you're owed. We're not going to be unreasonable. We're not going to file BS cases, but let's get what you're owed. And just the process of going through that, oh my God, wow, yes, I have been walked on. Yes, this is unfair. The assertiveness that comes with that is invaluable moving forward because they realize that, oh my, if somebody's taking advantage of me, I need to step up and stop it. There are people that are parasites. That's just the reality. They get away on society's kindness. So it's not your job to educate and help and direct everyone and make them better people. But if their callousness and if their disregard affects you, it is your responsibility to make sure it ends then and there and that you get what you're owed. It's a great point. And there's a theme that's running through this podcast, and I really like it, which is good people who are tough. And I think if you see someone who's 
first parlay is to be aggressive and in your face. You know underneath that there's not a lot there. There's a lot of damage. There's a lot of compensation going on. And and one of the best bits of advice I ever ever got when I was in you know in my thirties when I started to open the lens a bit between execution execution into what else is out there was the people who you associate with is your choice. It's not something that happens to you or you're forced to be around certain people. And the minute you realize you can just stop engaging with toxic people and choose the right people to be in business with, you can say no to a customer, to a client. And and the minute you do that, a year later, your life is transformed. You are in an environment now where you're not looking over your shoulder. You're not second-guessing every conversation you're having with someone with a business partner or a shareholder and you start to move forward in a life that is far more buoyant how do you do that in what you do because when you're in the office and and when you're representing people you're going to come across some pretty toxic people and you're not a magic superhero that can just leave and go into stubbies thongs and a carton of beer out the back and chill out what do you do to make sure that you're able to maintain perspective Boo, I'm as guilty of this as everyone else, you know, and it's one of those ironies that I've done this successfully for 2000 days, but on the 2001st day, you wake up and you go, oh, there's no point. It's never going to work. It's all going to go wrong. I mean, I'm as guilty as everyone. Well, here's a story for you. Recently, somebody was referred to me through a network that I know. This person has hired lawyers. The lawyers have bungled his case. He's now on appeal. And he's come to me to ask for my advice. And I felt sorry for him because I do think the lawyers bungled the case. And he seemed like a relatively nice person. And he was calling constantly, which I took to mean that he was concerned about his case and that he wanted to make sure things were done correctly and he wanted to get the right advice. And so as a courtesy to him, I said, okay, look, I'll look over this. And I gave him a price that was literally 10% of what it should be because I felt that he'd had an injustice done to him. And we sent him the agreement. Everything was done. I sell time and I gave him like three hours for free, which is insane because that's a lot of time that I could have been helping real people with. And then he sends me back, hey, I don't like this agreement. I don't like this term. I don't like that term, da, da, da. And it took that happening for me to go, well, okay, then go away. I don't have to help you. I don't want to help you. You're insane. If this is the way you're going to talk before we've done anything, get out of here, man. And it's You still fall foul of it because, you know, I I try to see the best in people and you give people the the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes it takes them pushing it beyond that limit for you to go, hey, I'm I'm not going to do that. What I have found has really worked for me is being quite upfront with my clients. So if anything, what I found tends to work really well is I paint a fairly desolate picture of what their outcome is, you know, under promise over deliver. Whereas I think a lot of service providers will promise the world and then there's no way they'll ever be able to deliver it. Because when you promise the world, you're going to win the work. I don't need to win the work. My job is stressful enough. I would happily sit in my office with nothing to do and surf the internet rather than take on a case that is with somebody I don't believe in and is a matter that's just to take the bills. I made that decision fairly early on in my practice that I would rather have five clients that I really want to help than 500 that I don't. Absolutely. It's such a powerful frame. We have that as one of the core values in my business for a long time, which is we are deliberate, not desperate, right? So if people are taking on clients because they feel desperate, they feel they have to, you're in for trouble. Same thing in early days when I got into business partnerships and things like that. And it was done out of a, a lack mindset, out of a more of a desperate mindset or desperate energy. And it bit me in the ass. You know, it's I still have residual of that because that was 20 years ago and it ended up creating the share structure of the companies that I still have in Sydney that that run under management. But 
my shareholding in that company is lower because I basically screwed myself in that process because I was desperate to get these people in because they were going to be like, they were going to be my the saving grace and all sort of crap. Whereas when you make things very, very deliberately, it's like, like Bill and I, we are partners, but we started the podcast first to test the water. We wanted to understand how do you tick? You know, what are your values? Are you aligned? Are we aligned on the same path? Are we doing the same thing? Are we looking to make the same impact? And, and that ability to be acutely aware and deliberate in why are we doing this, right? What's the benefit for both parties? What's the benefit for the clients and the people that we're going to be impacting through what we're doing? And it just became really obvious that it was the right choice. It's that wanting something versus needing something as well. Whereas need is desperate, the want is very deliberate. So um, I think that's an awesome point. So another question, Jahan, one of, one of the things I want to ask you is clearly you've learned a lot. You've seen all sorts of people in all sorts of states and backgrounds and narcissists and sociopaths and, you know, really amazing people that are victims of other people's rubbish. And you would have learned a whole lot. What's one key lesson, like one really standout lesson that you've learned that you would love to be able to take back to like a younger version of yourself and, and teach to yourself early on in your life? If there was one thing I could teach the younger version of myself is that if you help enough people succeed, you succeed along the way. If think of nothing else but being of service, you're going to succeed. You can't not succeed. It's just the most powerful thing that you can do. And if you're ever feeling bad, the best thing you can do is help someone else. That's the other thing that will absolutely transform your mindset because you go from woe is me to wow, I got to help people. Absolutely love that. That's exactly the journey I've been on as well. One of my key lessons is the same, is is getting from being all about me, ego, bigger companies, more companies, all the bullshit that I dealt with to legitimately just helping people to progress. Fills my cup more than anything that I've ever done before. You know, when, I, when I'm talking to any of my clients, I don't grow businesses, I grow people because people grow businesses. And if people show up as a better version of themselves, it impacts everybody around them and it has a legacy effect to their kids, to their grandkids. It's, and, and it is the ability to change the world or impact the world one person at a time. So I totally, totally agree. You know, help other people succeed and you will get that, which is the total opposite to the sociopath, narcissist type personalities we've been talking about. It's all about take and no give. Yeah, thanks, Jahan, for being very generous with us today. And, and hopefully we can have you back again because I think you're a, you're a deep well of humanity, mate, and you've got a lot to share with us. And, you know, I think fundamentally, and again, reflecting on this and many of the other conversations we have with the few, anywhere we can accelerate the journey to self-awareness and to these concepts of living a life of service. I, I did that as a in the military, but I didn't get it. I didn't do it on purpose. I It was a byproduct of wanting to fly a jet. Look, I think every time with my kids, how can you introduce that? Because we really are into ourselves from the moment we're born. And there's just this journey. And the faster we can get people to self-awareness and the faster we can create people without an ego, the better the planet has to be. I mean, surely that has to be a good outcome for the world. And and, and people like you, Jahan, you're just force multipliers for that awesome global outcome. You guys are very, very kind. I really appreciate that. And I think it boils down to really self-confidence is very important, but self-awareness is far more important. And we've spent so much time building up people's self-confidence that they have lost sight of what, one, their actual capacities are, and two, why we're here. Because at the end of the day, if you want to be remembered, if you want to be immortal, be kind. It's the fastest and best way to immortality. If you think pyramids and sculptures and obsequious wealth is going to have you remembered it's not people really aren't impressed with that stuff
they don't remember what you said or what you did. They remember how you made them feel. And there's not enough people, as you say, sharing kindness. So thank you so much for sharing uh, your, some of your story today, Johanna. It was just incredible. The profession of law is actually something that's incredibly powerful. It's a bit dedicated in service for other people. And I would say that some of those stigmas that you've heard, hopefully they've, uh, they've dropped a little bit after the conversation we've had today. So really want to say thanks again, mate. Thank you so much for having me, gentlemen. It was such a privilege to speak to you today. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Johan. That was awesome. This has been The View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at viewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.